Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Welcome to episode 112 of the Northern Miner Podcast. I am your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And we have a uh, terrific show for you this week. We have basically a live interview with Gren Thomas and Ira Thomas, recorded at our Canadian Diamonds uh, Symposium in Toronto um, well, about a month ago. Now, this is a long segment, so we'll jump right into it, but the segment starts with an, a broader introduction by Anthony Vaccaro, our publisher, and then uh, conducting the interview is Alicia Hyatt. She's the editor of our Diamonds in Canada magazine, which comes out twice a year and just came out uh, about a month ago, and she's also our editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal. What we have is Gren Thomas talking about some of the uh, excitement of the Divic discovery back in the old days and also growing up, how he got into the business, and then some of his uh, views on the industry more broadly today and the potential for more discoveries in Canada. And with Ira, she talks, of course, about Lucara, which is just uh, having phenomenal success down in Botswana. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the early Gold Corp. Uh, when they just had the Red Lake mine, where they're just stellar results, and uh, they're starting to think about mergers and acquisitions, but the the Coroa asset is so phenomenal, it's hard to uh, match it with something out there right now. And another thing that's quite interesting is Ira talks about the Clara project, which is a whole new way of selling diamonds instead of the classic parcel system uh, perfected by De Beers. This system uh, which is heavy on technology is selling each diamond individually to um, an end user so uh, she goes into that quite a bit so it's an interesting interview because we start off with Gren by himself and then we uh, Alicia interviews Gren and Ira together and you can see they just adore each other and, and then finishes with Ira herself there's one thing Ira mentions is the next day it hasn't been announced yet, but she announced that Aisha Hira, if I've got the name right, uh, has become uh, Lucara's Vice President of Corporate Development, in case you're wondering. Let's also thank our sponsors. We have uh, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Uh, their website is at yukonminingalliance.ca, and there's all kinds of information there about their 17-member companies. They're all exploring and developing gold projects, well, all kinds of projects in the Yukon, and they have an excellent Twitter feed at at Invest Yukon, all one word. And uh, just some latest news out of the Yukon. We have Triumph Gold, which is one of the Alliance members, and they just raised uh, $5.1 million, and uh, they closed it on July 11th, and they're going to put that money into their Free Gold Mountain project, where they have an ongoing 18,000-meter drilling program. Our second sponsor is the Grasso Group out of Vancouver, led by entrepreneur Joe Grasso. And they are mostly focused on Argentina in South America. And their website is grossogroup.com. And there are three public companies in the Grosso Group, Golden Arrow Resources, Blue Sky Uranium, and Argentina Lithium and Energy. And the latest news out of the Grosso Group is Golden Arrow Resources has just come up with a credit arrangement, kind of interesting here. And the arrangement is with their joint venture partner, SSR Mining. And they uh, have a credit line of $10 million, uh, payable within about two years or so. And they're going to put that money into their Pune joint venture, which is with SSR Mining. And uh, Golden Arrow Resources is a 25% partner there, and SSR Mining is the operator. So let's jump right into that interview with the Thomases right after this uh, interlude.
Okay, moving on to the uh, the final portion of the day, just as a little bit of setup and context for uh, the whole origin of uh, doing today. Um, myself and Stephen Stewart, who heads up the Young Mining Professionals, were at the Young Mining Professional Awards um, back in uh, at the PDAC in March. Uh, there's an Ira Thomas Award, and Ira Thomas was there. And Stephen and I thought, you know, we have this incredible Canadian story about Gren and Ira, and wouldn't it be great to, to bring them to Toronto? and to kind of build an event around that. And, but that's just an idea, right? And without the actual support of Iron Gren to come out here from Vancouver, we reached out to them. They both were very enthusiastic and said they'd love to support the event. Um, so we thank you very much, both Ira and Gren. And uh, we look forward to having this portion of the day, a nice fireside chat. I'm going to introduce our editor of uh, Diamonds in Canada. Alicia Hyatt has been the editor of Diamond in, uh, Diamonds in Canada for the last eight years. She's also the editor of Canadian Mining Journal, and she's been with the Northern Miner Group for 13 years. Uh, Alicia's uh, proven herself to be one of the, uh, the media industry's uh, experts in the diamond space, so we're happy to have her conduct the fireside chats. Alicia, please. Thanks, everyone. It's really great to see such a good turnout here today. It's really amazing. Um, I've been doing diamonds in Canada for the past eight years, and they haven't always been, hasn't always been a lot of excitement around diamonds, so I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, there are a lot of people in this room that, that do have that excitement, and the Northern Miner certainly shares that. So we're going to start our fireside chat with Gren Thomas. Gren, do you want to come up? Uh, Gren is an inductee in the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame and a diamond pioneer who played a central role in the birth of Canada's diamond industry. Gren grew up in a mining town in Wales and started working in the mining industry at the age of 16. He later went to school for mining engineering and ended up in Canada working at mines in Sudbury and the Northwest Territories before discovering a passion for grassroots exploration, which he's still doing today. Uh, Gren was part of a small team of explorationists who recognized the importance of the first diamond results to come out of Lac de Gras in 1991. They moved quickly to stake prospective land in the area and only a few years later discovered what would become Canada's second diamond mine and I believe also the richest, Diavik. <laughs> Currently Gren is chairman of North Arrow Minerals which continues the work of some of the early diamond explorers in Canada. So I want to start out talking about some of your, your early years in the industry. You started at a very young age, at 16, working in a coal mine. I imagine it was a difficult job. So I'm curious what, how that experience inspired you to actually go and have a career in mining. It was a job. You know, in, in those days, the, given my age, or children, I suppose you'd call them today, they never had made the choices about what they did, you know, you, on the point where you had to get a job. I could have ended up being a, a historian, I suppose, or, or a, a poet, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or a singer, maybe. But uh, you had to get a job, and that's just one of the problems I see today. The children are so relatively well off, they're not really obliged to make a decision to do anything. Anyway, I decided to... Uh, going to coal mine, either that or the steel industry or uh, maybe the oil industry or manufacturing. And uh, I chose mining because it, 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 there was more money. <laughs> and, and you know, the reason was you were flushed out job. And I was fortunate to end up doing something I really enjoyed all my life. I'm not saying I couldn't have done something else I've enjoyed all my life too. But I, I think it's fate, isn't it? So did so you ended up studying mining engineering, but you spent most of your career in exploration. So how did that passion get ignited for you? Well, I, I ended up you know, working in, in this mine, which is you know, 60 years ago now. And uh, the, um, I ended up going to night school and day school, which is another thing they did in the UK, which they don't, don't do here. People that went into mining in those days often were chosen by the universities to uh, if they'd had experience of working in mines or whatever, and they'd go there as what they call mature students. They'd go to the university instead of going at 18, which is the normal age there. They'd be going when they were, say, 20 or 19, 20, 21. And normally they'd worked underground for some time. 
that was a good system because the people that eventually ended up in the industry weren't uh, likely to suffer from any, anything like uh, you know claustrophobia or or worry about getting dirty and things like that. You know, which a lot of the kids come just directly from school into mining would probably discover. Um, so anyway, I was quite graduate at the time I was 23, and then I um, decided all I knew about was coal mines. And I visited and worked in dozens of coal mines by that time. I thought I should go to somewhere like Canada and learn something about metal mines. So I ended up going to uh, Sudbury and um, to a Falconbridge. And so I became um, a, an engineer at Falconbridge. And having spent a few months there, I was then transferred to to Yellowknife to work in Giant, which was also a Falconbridge mine. The company has disappeared now, like most large Canadian mining companies that existed when I came here. Canada was I had some of the greatest mining companies in the world when I came to Canada in '64. None of which exist now. Well, I guess Chemico is still uh, about. But um, so I ended up working in Giant, and, and I ended up um, getting into exploration, having worked in the mine as a, an engineer, um, and a fellow by George Aspley, who many people here would know. He was, uh, he was the evaluations guy of the Bank of Montreal in, in Toronto for years and years. And um, but the exploration manager got a hold of me one day, and he said, "You know the." Um, we have this geologist who said his name is Al Smith, and uh, he's an American. But, yeah. but anyway, he said his wife ran off with a pizza boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, Yeah, well, well we need a geologist. I've got to sit in this residency. I thought I don't like about geology. I said, I'm going to make a first year geology, not figure about it. Oh, he said, We'll figure it out. So the next thing you know, I get put on the plane, I'm sent up into the Lac de Grey area, oddly enough. And, in 1966, I worked in the north of a gold mine called the Tundra Gold Mine, which was the most northerly gold mine in Canada at the time. And I, I got the bug, you know, to, for expression. You're out there getting paid to ride around the canoe and walk around with the caribou and wolves and all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff I read in, in books in school as a kid, you know, Biggles books. And all those adventures books, you know, the kids read in the UK before TV. And um, so that's why I got into exploration. <laughs> and I've been at that since. Great life. So uh, 25 years after that first experience in Northwest Territories, in Lac de Gras, you were back in that same area. Yes. Um, I'm just curious um, how you got in there so early, the group of people that you, that you were with. Um, and how did you know that the Diamet results uh, in 1991 were real, considering that it was such a novel discovery for Canada? When that information first came out, we, my bailiwick is northern Canada. And I realized there's a large block of ground that was staked in the, the barrenlands. I say not far from where I first went to the, into the tundra. And um, everyone was speculating as to what it was. And some people said it was gold. So there's rumors, diamonds. So eventually, Diamet, being a public company, was obliged to say something about it because the stock was going up. And so they said the, the least they could say and, and be uh, legal, which was where these claims were, that they were indeed, uh, they had discovered uh, micro diamonds, and that, um, you know, and gave us a location which was purposely wrongly stated. <laughs> it was called Point Lake. Point Lake was not the Lac de Grasse. Point Lake was quite a bit to the northwest of that. And, um, and the, um, but anyway, they put it out. And of course, no one in Vancouver knew what it earth meant. What, what a microdiamond, you know? And what are we supposed to make of that? And um, so coincidentally, I was leaving to come to Vancouver a few days after this release came out to discuss a project in uh, Iceland, another one in Greenland, of which uh, another meeting was a fellow named Lee Barker was sitting in the room here. And, and um, he, he said to me, well, I said, I, at the end of the meeting, I said, look, we've, we've seen this result. I said, what does this mean? 
He said, I don't really know. He said, I tell the guy that really knows about this stuff is Chris Jennings. So it was also in the room. And uh, we have to get a hold of him, he said, and he can tell us the story, what the significance of these results are. So, um, of course, Chris comes along there, and of course, as you know, Chris, uh, and pretty soon you're well enthusiastic, and you're walking with five feet off the ground, you're on your way to Mark and Brother State Claims, right? Which is what happened. It was a result of that meeting up with Chris, otherwise we might have been too slow to get off the mark and actually get into the Lac de Grey area in a timely way, mm -hmm. which we were, because there still wasn't a lot of ground being required at that time. But our fortuitous, fortuitous meeting here, just talking about Greenland and, and Iceland, had this uh, outflow from it, which was fantastic, of course, in that respect. So having Chris Jennings was obviously a huge advantage to you. <laughs> How did Rio Tinto get involved with the project? Did they come to you or did you go to them? Well, they had a fellow, an Australian uh, geologist in London, uh, John, um, some other, um, Chris, what was his name? Collier. John Collier. And he, he sort of kept tabs on what was going on around the world. He was the worldwide expedition manager or something. And he had, had experience of the Argyle mine in Australia. And he knew a lot about that sort of thing. And I, and I guess he understood the significance of these results, which a lot of other people didn't. And um, because we attend to own the Argyle mine, you see, in Australia. I also believe Chris had been talking to him earlier on and be describing this whole play to him. I think that was that correct, Chris, or not? I think that was it, what happened. It's correct. I was on my way to South Africa. He phoned me and said, Come and see me in London. I said, I'm going to South Africa. Yeah. Uh, five days later, I had a first-class ticket to London. <laughs> <laughs> so they were familiar with it. They, of course, had a, by virtue of the takeover of Kennecott, they controlled uh, one of the best undeveloped copper mines in the north, copper deposits in the north. It was called High Lake. And we thought, well, okay, we've got this uh, land here, and over a million acres of this land. How can we leverage this? And, of course, we never really believe we could find anything. It was just claims. But, uh, but they had a deposit with, um, you know, five million tons of three percent copper. And we thought, well, maybe we can make some sort of trade here. And so we ended up earning into their project. They ended up earning into our project. And so we ended up with our exposure to the copper deposit, and they ended up with exposure to the land deposit. And that's how the deal with the Rio came about. I want to talk a little bit about the actual discovery of Dybbuk a little bit later, but uh, when we bring Ira up as well. But you were CEO of ABBA Resources until uh, 1999 when Dybbuk moved into the development stage, which is what I want to talk about now. But you remained a director of the company during development, so you had a front row seat to what was happening there. What was the most impressive aspect of, of building that mine to you at that time? Because it was it was a, a, a new thing, obviously, in Canada. Well, I, mean, I didn't. I wasn't that close to it actually at mm. that stage. But uh, one of the things I do recall about the project itself was because the capital costs were so high, we were required to put up five or five million, five uh, five hundred million dollars ourselves, which for mm. a junior company at that time was pretty impossible. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, this is another bit of serendipity here, another, another thing that, that helped a great deal in, the, in this project, was that when Ava was uh, starting into the diamond space, we had no money. So we, we rented an office space in Calgary, but then we had three offices. I had one, my accountant had another one. And we had a spare office, which we rented out to a, a fellow who was John Ethans, who had a company called Commonwealth. And he got interested in the diamond players, so we had quite some ground up there together. But he also acquired ground in uh, another project called Snap Lake. So his company, Commonwealth, owned that. We ended up merging these two companies. And at the time, so we had an interest in the Snapplate deposit via, because of the fact we needed to rent an office or somebody. 
So we ended up that deposit, and we sold that our interest in that deposit to to the Beers, just as we were about to, as we were obliged to raise this 500 million. We, we managed to raise 170 million by selling our interest to to the Beers, so we could keep up our end in in the deal. And that to me was probably a significant thing that happened at the time, because it enabled us to stay in there, which no one anticipated we ever would. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> um, skipping ahead to the present, we're at the point of maturity in Canada's diamond sector in some ways right now. Uh, many of the deposits that were found in the 90s, in the early 90s and, and later, um, have been developed into mines and are, are now starting to reach the end of their mine lives. What do you think needs to happen to get another wave of diamond exploration and discovery going? I think it's the same with gold on diamonds. I think we need um, a price increase here, or a demand increase, and lots of those coming. Just listening to the, some of the talks here today, it's probably long overdue, and I think that should ignite uh, a lot more activity mm -hmm. in the sector. But I think there are other issues, you know, out there that affect companies like that. Like the junior market is a bit problematic in a sense. There's a lot more private capital around now. There's less interest in, in mining because you've got these competing things that people can can use speculative money for, like you know the blockchain stocks and you know, coins and marijuana. There always seems to be something else competing. In the old days, the speculative market was largely mining. Mm -hmm. But the market's getting bigger and bigger all the time. There's more and more money around. So it, I'm quite optimistic that uh, things will be good in the next five years. Mm -hmm. yeah. How would you describe the, the amount of interest or the level of interest right now in diamond exploration? It's fairly weak. Mm -hmm. yeah. Although we've had uh, success selling this uh, financing that we're doing in order to finance our exploration up in the in one of it. We're still having to buy half the stock ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so there's still enthusiasm amongst me. <laughs> you have some, North Arrow has some good support as well from um, institutional investors and... We have, but they've got their position and they're, they're not increasing it greatly. Oh. I think they're... Um, mm -hmm. But public are more interested now than they were. Mm -hmm. So we've had no trouble selling full through share and this sort of stuff. And now we have the over three, three million bucks that's all subscribed actually. So I think it is interest is returning. Mm -hmm. Your interest has never waned. You're still looking for the next uh, deposit with North Arrow and you're involved with some other juniors as yeah, well. That's right. I'm still and I still haven't learned uh, it's better to probably put in my elsewhere, but uh, but it's the triumph of um, of naivety and, and optimism, you know, the reality, right? <laughs> and I spent my life um, doing this sort of thing, and sometimes it works out pretty well. But um, uh, most of the time it's, it's been difficult to um, talk to shareholders who spent all the money <coughs> on something without really finding a great deal. But they, they do it frequently enough that they come back, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that the shareholders, like, like, I, like we all do, that play in the speculative market. But, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are attempting to, to turn the sales years into sort of purses, and um, the, uh, that's uh, what drives the business, you know. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any advice for, for other juniors who are trying to make discoveries? Really, I, I, <laughs> you've got to go and do it, it seems to me. You've got to explore. And um, unless you're in the game, you know, you've got to drill, right, essentially. You've got to, you've got to get that drill going. And because uh, unless you drill, you're not going to find anything. Mm -hmm. But just, uh, I can't give it much advice to juniors, because I'm, I'm uh, old in the tooth. I don't understand a lot of the, the new ways of raising money, like fund, crowdfunding mm. and, and all this stuff that's done online. I'm not really adept at that, and I see that's where the future will be, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, but we yeah, still need exploration done, and it will still be done, I think, for the small companies. 
Yeah, I think at this point we'd like to invite Ira to the stage. We're going to have a discussion now with Ira and Gren, and then we will conclude the afternoon uh, with a one-on-one -on -one chat between Ira and Alicia. I know you all know both of both Gren and Ira, but I'm going to introduce Ira anyways. Ira Thomas is a geologist with 25 years of experience in the mining industry, much of that in diamonds. Very early in her career, Ira was part of the exploration team at Aber Resources that made the Diavik diamond discovery, and she later became Aber's VP of Exploration. As a founder and CEO of Stornoway Diamond, she led the company's initial acquisition of the Renard deposit, which is now Quebec's first diamond mine. And more recently, she was CEO of Kamenak Gold for three years, advancing the coffee deposit in the Yukon and leading the company into a more than half billion dollar acquisition by Gold Corp in 2016. Ira was also a co-founder of Lucara Diamond in 2007 and was appointed CEO of the company earlier this year. And of course, Ira is Gretton's daughter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. I thought I was her father. Maybe just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your dad's influence on your joining the mining industry as a career? Sure. Well, it was a huge influence because as a, as a child, I used to spend a lot of my summers uh, working, not working, but just joining my father uh, in the field in the Northwest Territories. So from a very young age, I got to experience this uh, extraordinary world. It was so different from you know, the small town that I grew up in. So I had early exposure to exploration and certainly you know, he had me working early, carrying samples, trudging around the bush, my sister and I. We couldn't often keep up with him, though, because he walked fast, and eventually he turned around and realized that we weren't there, <laughs> and he'd have to come back and collect us later in the day to find out where we'd got to. But, yeah, it was, it was uh, an amazing experience. Sounds like he imparted his same uh, love of adventure to you. Definitely. Um, so how old were you the first time you went out into the... Well, pretty young, probably seven or eight. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, when I was about that age. Yeah. <laughs> I was a bit sad about the dead bear that we had to shoot. Yeah. Gren, you actually recruited Ira to work at Aber at the beginning of the Diamond Rush, and Ira played a dramatic part in the uh, Diavik discovery in uh, 1994. So what, what led you to bring Ira on board at that time? Was it an all-hands-on-deck situation? Well, she, she, uh, she had a degree in geology by then, and, and, um, and she'd had a lot more experience than just doing around my camps, which was mainly at Thor Lake, right? That's where we first started mm -hmm. working on. It was on this polymetallic, well, rare earth deposit. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the meantime, we worked in uranium deposits and these sort of things, and um, and yes, it was. And I thought it should be fascinating for her to see and to get involved in. And also, she was considering doing a PhD, which I didn't think was a very good idea. <laughs> 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 it would have been all the rest of the time, and all that action was going on. Well, I think it, this worked out for everyone, obviously. Not to mention the fact that we didn't really have any money, so I was good cheap labor. <laughs> we had like $7 million left of the treasury, so. <laughs> Going back to the moment of discovery at Diavik, can you both describe that moment from your own points of view? Starting with sure. you, Ira. Well, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing to, uh, to be part of, and it was, uh, in many ways, a very typical discovery type of story. Uh, you know, Aber at that time was operator of the Diavik project and we'd been exploring since 1990, well early 91 really. We'd been very successful at finding Kimberlites. As Chris and, and Lee will attest to, we had, uh, you know, lots and lots of targets and we, we found Kimberlites quite easily, but what really evaded us was finding uh, significant quantities of, of microdiamonds. So by the time 1994 rolled around, most of the enthusiasm and excitement in the exploration uh, for diamonds and Lactigras had shifted to DO27, and so the or in, and the work that was happening on the caddy and and our projects had really kind of matured. 
So at that point, I was uh, running the field program, and we had a fairly modest budget. Rio Tinto was still earning their interest. You know, we'd basically gotten through the field season, and we'd been chasing a number of really high potential, very interesting indicator mineral targets, but they took us right to the edge of Lac de Gras. So we knew they were coming from the lake, and that was a bit discouraging because the likelihood of finding an economic deposit in the middle of Lac de Gras seemed unlikely. But we uh, decided to drill it anyway. We literally were down to the last dollars in the budget. It was spring. The ice was starting to melt on the lake, and we made a decision to spot a drill hole on Lac de Gras, and the first hole we drilled came up with nothing. But we were perplexed because, you know, the indicator minerals really led exactly there. And so we had, uh, you know, had office calling. Basically at that time, Bob Heinsohn saying, you got to pull the rig off, you're out of money now, we're going over budget. Robin Hopkins and I, you know, were convinced that we needed to move the rig over. And uh, so we did, and we drilled one more hole, and that was the discovery hole for A21, which was actually the first Kimberlite that we found. And then we were able to get one more hole in, in 154 South, which is the hole that we found the two carat diamond in. So it was an incredibly exciting discovery to be part of, but also frustrating because we literally had run out of time and we had to get the rigs off the ice. So we, we got those two holes down and that was it. We had. Yeah. Because they were they weren't primary targets. There was like tertiary targets. Yeah. We were just getting around to dealing with these tertiary targets because they weren't as good looking as the initial targets, mm-hmm. right? No, that's true. That's exactly right. And uh, you know, when we when we did drill that incredible hole in one five four south, where we were, you know, fortunate enough to to find a, a two carat diamond in the drill core. All of us, you know, had never seen yeah. a diamond in the rough. None of us had. So we did actually, fortunately, have a diamond tester from a little jewelry store because we were trying to, could it be a zircon? I don't know. And, and then when we, when we tested it and the green light went off, and we, we all jumped. And, and, of course, Dad was in Vancouver. A number of the, the Kennecott Rio geos, including Buddy Doyle and John Stevenson, were in camp at the time that we brought the core in. And John Stevenson said... Ira, I don't think it's a good idea that you tell your father over the phone. The stock is still trading. I think we should try and go into lockdown mode here. So we uh, we flew the core out, and and then I took the core directly to Dad. I asked him to meet me at the airport. You were pretty grumpy about that because you weren't feeling very good. But after four years, he said, why are you dragging me all the way to the airport? Um, To show him the core. Yeah, eventually we went over to Bob's and we, we... but of course, we didn't know the significance of that. All we knew is we had this amazing, amazingly rare occurrence mm-hmm. of finding a diamond in the core. But it would be two more weeks before we actually had the microdiamond analysis from the core, which basically confirmed that this was one of the highest grade kimberlites uh, ever discovered. So it was, it was a very, very exciting. There was a second diamond actually in the core too. Yes, at 154 yeah. meters. Yeah. Which is pretty unusual. So you've both had a lot of success in your careers, obviously. Grant, I want to ask you, are there qualities that you and Ira share that you think have led you both to, to have so much success in the industry? Well, I, I think I'm naive enough to be optimistic all the time. I think a lot of people, you have to have a certain attitude. Because you know, 95% of the time you get defeated, right? And, well, actually probably more often than that. And some perfectly, <laughs> some perfectly uh, talented and uh, experienced people never get excitement of finding something original. But um, it happens often enough that it keeps us at it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. I think I was like that too. Do you agree? Yeah, you have to be optimistic, but it's kind of the treasure hunting gene, that's what I call it. I mean, you get kind of addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have the kind of experience that we all had at Divic, which is an amazing story, and you're able to follow a project from the staking of the claims right through to you know, cutting the ribbon on the mine opening, it is an extraordinary experience. It, I, I think very few people, and I agree with that, even if you're... Uh, incredibly talented and successful, very few people get the chance to have that, that full sort of life cycle experience. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, it begs the question of why don't you quit while you're ahead? But uh, I don't know. For some reason, there, there is at that point, you just get addicted to the whole process and you want to try and do it all over again. So you've worked together um, throughout your careers at different points. What is the most important thing about the mining industry that you've learned from your dad? You know, it's all about people, I think, and that's what I've learned from dad, you know, from a very early age, just going into the camps and recognizing that, uh, you know, you need a lot of different talents and a different skills, and whether it's someone that's there to build the dock and maintain the equipment, whether it's the cook in the camp or whether it's your geophysicist and the engineer, that it's all of these people are ultimately necessary to make a discovery and, and to, to be successful. So I think that's probably the most important thing I learned from my father. It's never about one person. It's really about putting a brain trust around the table mm -hmm. and drawing on all those different resources. Mm -hmm. You won't survive otherwise. <laughs> it's like being in the business. You have to, that, some people just don't like doing that stuff. But, and it's wonderful. Shifting to the bigger picture around diamonds, can you both talk a little bit about the potential for more discoveries in Canada and why you think that, that we do have the potential for more mines? Sure, John. Well, I mean, I think just geologically, we've got uh, tremendous endowment in Canada. And we had this huge rush in the mid-90s, which was a, it was very successful in, in identifying uh, the deposits that are n now maturing. But we're still relatively underexplored compared to the other mature diamond-producing regions, and I think that's what makes Canada such a prime hunting ground. And the fact that so many, of, so much of this, this of Canada is still inaccessible, you know, the lack of infrastructure. So exploration is expensive, and it's just that much more inefficient. So I, I think there's still lots of things to find in Canada. I think we've maybe found the easiest things. But I think we will, we will continue to find new things, and I think uh, North Arrow is a testament to that and the work that we've been doing, which is really following up on uh, a lot of the uh, initial exploration efforts of that 1990s era and uh, taking those to the, next, to the next stage. And also, Canada has a hell of a depth of talent, people you know, to, that do exploration, like the best in the world. As long as the government doesn't screw it up like it screws most of them. Because we've got it made. We've got the geology, we've got the geologists. And um, the, um, the, I suppose the fact the government's been so slow to develop the north, that's why it's still wide open. But whereas other countries, that would be a lot more work done in the north by now. But there hasn't been. And, um, and, and it will happen. So there's lots of things for us to do in the next generation or two. Definitely. Yeah. So diamond explorer. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Can I go on? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um, diamond exploration in Canada's north, as you just alluded to, is is very expensive and time consuming. Um, have there been any advances in technology or um, exploration methods that might make finding the next uh, diamond mines in Canada? less expensive or easier in any way? You know, there, ha there have been. I mean, I think we're always evolving, which is, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, and, and whether it's, uh, you know, just an overall cost, uh, the cost to, to kind of access some of these areas. But, you know, for example, there's one particular technique right now that Lucara is actually involved in in, in Africa, but it has been applied to the Akati claim block, and this is a new uh, type of airborne magnetic surveying, which is an order of magnitude cheaper than previous uh, airborne surveys that we would have deployed in the era of the early diamond exploration in and around Lac de Grasse. So that, that has the potential to be a game changer because this is high resolution magnetic data that can be collected very quickly and very efficiently. Um, I think certain drilling technologies and being able to sample till and yeah, you know we have made some progress um, on that front and I, and then I think it's it's also you know the alliance and partnership with academia and the industry and understanding the science and the geology I think is really important how to get smarter about targets 
target selection and make sure that, you know, instead of drilling tel 10 holes, you're drilling two and you're focused on your best potential target. So I think uh, all of that work that's been done over the last 20 years is, has improved the odds. It's still a high-risk, high-stakes mm -hmm. game, but I think, I think it, is getting, it is getting better. What I'd like to see happen is, is some cheaper way of moving stuff around in, in areas that are out the roads, you know. One of the big problems we have in the North now is, is because of the, the government interference in all sorts of aspects of exploration, principally you know, the safety stuff, not that I'm saying people need to be unsafe, but planes take half the loads, not only two pilots, instead of one, the pilots can't stay in the bush longer than a few weeks. Drillers can't stay in the bush. All these things are adding great expense, particularly in remote areas. And I think, um, you know, they need to sort of, uh, government needs to address some of these issues because it, otherwise the North isn't going to get developed as quickly as it could. Mm -hmm. and, and because the costs have gone up. You know, like, like you, you, you didn't need to do um, anything like the stuff you have to do now, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It was a lot freer to get stuff done. Land was a lot easier to acquire. It was relatively cheap to work. The cost of working in Yellowknife, for example, in back in the um, in the 60s and 70s, wasn't really a huge consideration because everyone assumed that one day, if you discovered something out 200 miles out in the Badlands, maybe a new nickel mine or something, the government would build a road. That option doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. and there, there are too many things thwarting that. And so I'm hoping that in some ways, one little small thing would be to improve air transportation, not maybe dirigibles or something like that. Mm -hmm. are, is there any um, new technology that North Arrow is, is making use of in terms of exploration? No, we don't try and use this, uh, this mag system that Ira mm -hmm. alluded to. But then you have to get, although this is a small plane, you need government uh, transportation permits, you know, to go and use it. I mean, people in, in private can go and buy one of these things and they can fly it around any permit at all. But if you're doing it for commercial purposes, it needs a permit, even though it's, you know, it's half the size of this table. Right. That's government. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you find regulations in the same complaints about regulations in Botswana, working in Botswana, as as Gren has in No, it's generally part. easier, I would say. Okay. There, it's a, I, mean, I mean, it can still be slow, mm -hmm. but I think the, the system is, is definitely more straightforward. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the best countries in Africa, too, so I think that's an unusual situation. Mm -hmm. But I think the regulatory burden generally for our industry, you know, continues to be a real challenge, and I think it is an impediment, and I think it is something that we need to, to overcome because you do spend a lot of time on compliance and less time doing what we should be doing, which is putting money into the ground and finding things. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for both of you, are diamonds special for you or is it exploration for anything? Is it well, that? Well, not special. <laughs> <laughs> I could say something sexist. <laughs> Oh, listen, I like exploration too at the end of the day, but uh, diamonds is special. It's, a, it's an extra challenge. It's, a, it's an, a unique commodity that way. But I, I listen, I, I enjoyed my, my stint in the gold business too. So, mm -hmm. so I think uh, we're ready to move on to the last part of the conversation, which is just uh, me and Ira. Um, you can go now. <laughs> Ira, you've been involved with um, so many successful projects in the mining industry, both uh, diamond projects and gold. How do you choose the opportunities that you pursue, whether it's, uh, for example, Stornoway's acquisition of Renard when you were CEO or um, accepting the position of, of CEO as, at Kamenak Gold in 2013? You know, listen, I think sometimes you choose, then sometimes you get chosen. It, you know, it, it does depend, but I think fundamentally, 
when we were looking at Stornoway's prospects back in the in the you know in the earliest years uh, that we formed the company, we were really focused on the Eastern Arctic. And, you know, we realized in order to grow that company that it and, and just to kind of overcome the huge timelines to get a project from exploration through to development, you know, we wanted to look for a more mature prospect that might shorten that timeline up potentially provide us with some cash flow that would allow us to, to reinvest in some of the other projects that we wanted to advance. So I think it was really with that in mind that we started to look hard at, at Renard and we felt that you know we had you know the right experience and, and expertise to be able to take that project and bring it forward um, and take it through feasibility. So that was really why we targeted Renard and quite frankly there's very few of these assets around, so we thought it, it made sense as part of our core strategy. Mm-hmm. And then with Kamenak Gold, most people associate you with diamonds. Why did you decide to pursue you that? You know, it was, it was an interesting opportunity for me because it was in, um, in my backyard. I'm from Vancouver, and I had small children at that time, so mm-hmm. the idea of getting on a plane and either going up to the you know, far north, to the eastern Arctic, or heading down to Africa wasn't terribly appealing. And, you know, this project literally uh, is about a two and a half hour flight from Vancouver. I could be up and back in a day if I really wanted to be. So that was appealing. And again, it, it comes back to the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I knew John Robbins, the chairman there, very well. He'd been an original founder of Stornoway. He'd approached me with the, the opportunity. It was the CEO that was running the company at the time had <coughs> decided to. Uh, you know, take a, a big sabbatical, and they were looking for someone with my skill set. It was a project that had an interesting ro- resource, and they wanted to try and de-risk it and take it forward through through feasibility. And I, I looked at from a geological perspective, it was very very compelling. So mm-hmm. it kind of ticked all the boxes. It was a great group of people, and uh, and I never worked in the Yukon before, mm-hmm. so that was of interest too. Mm-hmm. So just in February of this year, uh, you accepted the position of CEO at Lucara, a company that you co-founded. Can you tell us about your vision for the company? Yeah, listen, I think with Lucara, um, the opportunity there is, you know, it's a decade-old company. We've been in production for five years. Uh, We have this amazing, you know, little mine in Botswana, which is a high-margin mine, and I think we struggled to figure out where we really wanted to go with that company and in, in you know previous years because it's such a high margin producer trying to you know find another asset that would be compatible or accretive was was challenging uh, you know I think it, we all felt that it was time to really give it a good refresh uh, our CEO uh, that had been in the seat for 10 years you know William Lamb who'd done a very good job of you know building this project incorporating innovative technology that allowed us to to really maximize the value of of the diamonds there and the first diamond mining company to use XRT you know all of all of these sort of foundational elements of the company were there and you know William was at a point where he'd been at it 10 years and was ready to do something new so I think for me stepping into the role you know today it's really about crafting kind of a new vision for the company going forward We've been doing a lot of work um, trying to understand the resource at depth. We're feeling, you know, very optimistic uh, about uh, the potential of expanding the mine life for another decade. So really, we're, we're looking at a resource now that will carry us to 2036. So rather than viewing this mine as a little annuity, now we're thinking about how we grow it. And we do think that there's uh, a real need out there in the industry for a you know, uh, an investable mid-tier diamond company, a, a multi-asset diamond company that doesn't really exist right now. So we think that Lucara could uh, is well positioned to to be that company. So as part of that, um, and in keeping with our our kind of reputation as a as a leader in innovation, we acquired Clara, which uh, is, is actually a private company that I've been working on for the last nine or ten months. Um, which is not a mining opportunity, rather it's a secure digital sales platform um, which is, in my view, positioned to completely disrupt how we sell diamonds. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about 
what Clara is? Yeah, I mean, Clara in its simplest form is, is, you know, the way we sell diamonds hasn't changed for a hundred years. It's an antiquated system. It was set up for good reason in that diamonds are a tough commodity to sell because each diamond is unique. They all have different price points. And if you're a producer and you're trying to sell diamonds in volume regularly for repeatable revenues, the way that we do that is by essentially batching them into assortments. So rather than selling individual diamonds, we sell assortments of diamonds. And in doing so, we can create this sort of more regular repeatable revenue uh, flow. However, we now have technology today to do away with that sort of traditional push system. And the problem with that push system, by the way, is that there's manufacturers all over the world, there's thousands of them, all set up to manufacture different qualities of diamonds into different products. When you buy in the batch system and you, a manufacturer buys a batch of diamonds, inv- inevitably they can only use a portion of those diamonds in their factories. The rest of them they have to sell on. So you end up with this amazing secondary tertiary trading regime, which is very inflexible and inefficient. And so with Clara, what we're aiming to do is to turn that system on its head. So rather than a push system, we're creating a pull system where we're going to be selling diamonds individually and we're going to be matching individual diamonds to their optimal polished output. Mm-hmm. So the manufacturers are really going to be driving the marketplace and they'll be buying only the diamonds that they need for their manufacturing businesses. They will no longer have to buy a huge assortment of diamonds that they can't ultimately use. So it's going to make the, the selling of diamonds more efficient? Far more efficient, and, and in doing so, we can unlock a lot of value across the pipeline. And the test work we've done on this has demonstrated that with $5 million U.S. worth of diamonds through the platform, we've unlocked 18 to 23% of value for the producers all the way through to the manufacturers. So there's a significant prize there if we, if we start selling diamonds this way. How are you going to be rolling this out um, at Lucaro? So we're going to roll it out in uh, August, September. So the platform is now being commercialized and scaled, and that's gone very, very well. And and we'll start uh, selling diamonds from Kuroi uh, through the platform in the August-September timeframe. Mm-hmm. And that will really demonstrate the potential to unlock value, and thereafter we'll be inviting other producers to trial the platform. And the beauty of Clara is that we're not suggesting that the old way of selling diamonds needs to be thrown out overnight. We're suggesting that producers should, you know, take a portion of their goods and trial them through Clara and compare uh, and see how they do compared to how they sold diamonds traditionally. Similarly, you know, I think the real sort of driver for the onboarding of Clara is going to come out of the manufacturing industry because once manufacturers have the ability to buy only the diamonds they want, they're really going to compel, I think, other producers to sell this way. And I just came from the Diamond and Jewelry Show in Hong Kong. It's the largest show of the year and met with a number of manufacturers, and they're incredibly excited at the prospect of being able to buy diamonds this way. Mm-hmm. And what about um, other producers? Are, they, are you getting interest from them as well? We are getting some interest, actually. We've had quite a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that De Beers is 100% there yet, <laughs> but we have uh, got lots of interest from, from the mid-tier companies, and we've got, you know, even Al Rosa is, is very, very interested in the kind of digitalization of the whole marketplace. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our view is this is inevitable. Uh, we have the technology to do this. Uh, it's going to happen. The question is when and, and who's going to lead it. Mm-hmm. It's still a pretty bold move, uh, even if you think it's inevitable in, in some way. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's what we like about it. So I'm wondering how the investment community has, has responded to the idea. Uh, well, the uh, you know what? We're getting no credit for it, which is, which is fine. You know, we are very confident that once we're able to start transacting diamonds on Clara and demonstrate the value that it unlocks, that the, the market will, will catch up. Um, it was a very affordable transaction for Lucara. It was less than 3.7% dilution. Mm-hmm. It's very inexpensive to get this platform up and running. Our total budget for the year is $3 million. Mm-hmm. And our view is um, uh, you know, that Clara uh, will generate revenues that will match or exceed the revenues we're generating from our mine. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And what time period are you thinking 
that would happen in well you know <laughs> certainly we're, we've got a, a ramp up here over the next 18 to 24 months is, okay. is what we're thinking uh-huh. amazing we talked a little bit about potential M&A for Lucara for mm. the uh, I don't have a copy up here but in the current issue of Diamonds in Canada can you tell me a little bit about what your strategy will be there? Because you mentioned that obviously Kuroi is, is, a, is an incredible asset and there are very few, if any, other assets like that out there. So what is your strategy there? Yeah, listen, we live in a, a small universe and I mean, that's one of the reasons that Lucara made the decision to consider Clara. You know, the initial thoughts on Clara, well, it's not a diamond mining opportunity. Are these things really going to be compatible? But I think in the end, we realized that actually there was good synergy between these, the two. Clara benefits from having diamonds from Kuroi as, as part of the, the trial. And Lucara really needed a growth strategy. So I think it kind of sets us on that path. In terms of other opportunities, I think what we're, what we're doing now and, you know, very shortly we'll be announcing a new uh, executive position, uh, a new executive leader that's joining the company as of actually tomorrow in the role of uh, Vice President of Corporate Development and Strategy. And, and part of the mandate for that person is really going to be to look hard at the universe of potential opportunities. And we're not saying we're going to go out and you know buy up the universe of, of diamond companies tomorrow. I think we want to take a view on that, and then, of course, all of this comes down to to timing. But we do mm-hmm. think there are things to do. We're fortunate that we have a completely unencumbered balance sheet. We've got $43 million in cash and no debt and access to a $50 million credit facility. We really do believe that we're going to you know, be, by the end of the year, talking about extending our mine life to 2036. So that gives us a nice engine to uh, to think about consolidation. You know, in addition to that, we pay a dividend. So up until this point, we've really been reinvesting in our business through the dividend and through kind of our underground work. But I think going forward, we're going to start to uh, consider uh, the full range of options, and, and that'll include consolidation, other, you know, single-asset opportunities that are out there. Mm-hmm. And are, are there any jurisdictions in particular that, that you would be looking at? You know, we're going to look at all jurisdictions. I think because this universe is so small, you can't get too prescriptive and too restrictive. Obviously, we love Botswana. Botswana has been very good to Lukara. It's a jurisdiction that we know and understand. As I mentioned, the, uh, you know, this initiative we got on the exploration side with, with a joint venture with a company called Sunbird, and we're looking at a number of the smaller players in and around our mine site. And then, you know, we're certainly obviously keen on Canada, just mm-hmm. having, you know, a mine outside of Botswana and another safe, stable jurisdiction makes a lot of sense. But we'll look broadly. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your view of the diamond market? I know you just said that you returned from the JCK jewelry yeah. show. You know what, the mood and is it was actually very optimistic, I, I would mm-hmm. say. I think most producers uh, have reported strong results uh, going into 2018 that's really following on a you know a strong holiday season at the end of 2017 and and honestly we found that that momentum is continuing to 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 really kind of build uh, strong and steady so I think we've seen certainly China come back in a in a in a pretty significant way and overall I think the world is feeling more optimistic about diamonds I think the fundamentals around supply and demand uh, continue to be uh, you know, uh, sort of underpin the whole investment thesis for diamonds, and that, you know, that I think is is well understood. And as we see mines like Argyle maturing and reaching end of life, as a number of the other diamond mines, whether they're in Canada or Africa, are getting near nearing end of life, those supply demand fundamentals uh, continue to strengthen. So I think we're all optimistic that we've got a, a stronger diamond market in our future. So it bodes well for the big development projects mm-hmm. that are still in the pipeline, like STAR. How does that uh, outlook fit in with, uh, I know Paul talked earlier about De Beers' announcement recently that they're going to be selling uh, synthetic diamonds. Yeah. Um, how does that fit into the optimism about the industry fit in with that announcement? Well, you know, I, I actually think it's positive. There's been, uh, you know, mixed views on the whole light box initiative, but I think the reality is that synthetics are here to stay. 
they don't need to be a competitive market, and I think that's what De Beers is saying with Lightbox. Um, you know, in, in setting up Lightbox for one specific part of the pipeline or market is, is, is a smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think it really differentiates natural stones now from synthetic stones. Uh, you know, a one carat synthetic diamond uh, under Lightbox will sell for $800 a carat. That same diamond is worth 7700 on the natural scheme. So I think to, to really break those two markets apart and clearly set them up as independent but parallel markets um, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're focused on, on small stones, lower value stones as a producer, uh, it's, it's more challenging. But I would argue that that part of the market has been challenged already anyway because synthetics has really taken, taken over that part of the market already. So. Mm -hmm. Overall, I'm optimistic, and I, I think it was a it was a smart move. Mm. I wonder if anyone in the audience has any questions for Ira. We can open it up, Chris. Ira, you and I have corresponded briefly on this, but I think it's time for a new major diamond player in the well. Yeah. And we've heard a number of Canadian producers, as yourself, in Botswana, there's Penguin, and other companies in Botswana. There's Lukaku in Angola. It's time if personalities will allow to have a new major there of the lines of Via Tinto or the Beers. It's not yet ready, but it's, I see it in the future. Thanks, Chris. I 100% agree. I think it's needed, too. I think if we want to get more momentum back into the business, we need an investable size company that the market can get behind. And on that, in turn, I think we'll help junior explorers and the whole pipeline. You mentioned that the A154 discovery was a tertiary target. When you go back and look at the indicator minerals and what led you to put it as a tertiary target, would you reevaluate that differently to move it up the pipeline? You know, it wasn't a tertiary target on the basis of the indicator minerals. The indicator minerals were amazing. The problem was it took us to the edge of a giant lake that was 200 kilometers long. So determining where in that 200 kilometer long lake the target lay was a challenge, and it, but it was a tertiary target from respect to the geophysics. The geophysics was not completely straightforward. It was a mag target, plus it had, you know, also a resistivity target associated. But it, you know, our initial interpretation led us to drill right between 154 South and 154 North. So we, that's why we missed it on the first hole. But it was tertiary from from geophysics. Did I see another question? One question. Well, congratulations on the Sadie Larona, the world's second largest uh, uh, rock tower. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering, do you uh, do you feel that uh, Lucara could uh, impact, discover world's largest, more, you know, bigger than Cullinan? Do you have that option? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we, in fact, I mean, um, I say, you know, I smile when I say that, but we did invest last year in what we, we're calling our mega diamond recovery circuit. So this is a, a, that we spent about $12 million building this circuit now, which is capable of recovering diamonds up to 5,000 carats in size. So that's, that's what we, we hope to recover. <laughs> I had one more question. How did you meet the people behind Clara, and what is their background? Is it in the diamond industry, or is it more on the tech side? Or yeah, no, the Clara story is a, is an interesting one. It came out of the manufacturing business. So mm -hmm. this was uh, as many of you in the room that are familiar with the diamond industry on the manufacturing side. It often uh, families and multi generations of families, and this is no exception. So this was like the the youngest third generation uh, of a well known diamond family where they're you know son had gone to school and done computer science and the cousin had gone and you know done a, also a technical engineering degree and they came back to their grandfather and said why do we buy diamonds this way this is ridiculous there 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 has to be a better way and their grandfather tasked them with finding the solution so they went away and for two and a half years worked on an algorithm this matching algorithm that would allow us to use existing technology in the, in the diamond business that's in widespread use, this is scanning technology, to use that to be able to, to really match rough diamond output with, with polished demand. So I can't tell you who the family is because they would like to be anonymous, but, uh, but that it came out of a manufacturing family and then they brought it to, to me because they felt that it needed 
sponsorship for, with, with someone that had production experience. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Fantastic. All right. Ira, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Right. So our inaugural Diamond Symposium, it seems that there's some demand for this. So we thank all of the delegates for being here and filling the room. I want to give special thanks, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, but to our diamond sponsors, Star Diamond Corporation, to our gold sponsors, Dun sorry, Dunedin Ventures, North Arrow Minerals, SRK, Telmora Diamond, and to our silver sponsors, Burgundy Diamond Products and LithoQuest Diamonds Incorporated. Thank you very much, and thank you again to everyone here. Cheers. that's just about it for this episode uh, and as, as always we appreciate your support with the podcast if you uh, can please like our podcasts and share them and uh, you can uh, if you're not a subscriber you can subscribe to our newspaper which is online or in print and um, or advertise of course some of the things we're working on I, I finally finished my Ukrainian site visit so that's in our um, latest issue and some of the specials coming up, we have a countdown of the top 10 uh, Canadian mining companies in various categories. And then upcoming specials, we have another one on uh, brace metals and iron ore and uh, coal. That's the next one. And then after that, we're going to do a countdown of the top 10 uh, U.S. mining companies in various categories. So that's it for this week, and talk to you later. Bye-bye.